out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter. It is Keith Christmas, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And um, just, while well, he's made lots of records, obviously in the late 60s and early 70s, and recently brought out an album called Life Life, which is uh, 2019, as well as Crazy Dancing Days from 2016, and um, performed or played acoustic guitar on David Bowie's Space Oddity, and um, appeared, I think, at one of David Bowie's very early festivals that he put on at uh, the Beckenham um, Bandstand, or Bowie's Bandstand. But anyway, we're going to find out more about that much later on in the interview. So sit back, relax and enjoy the next hour as we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Keith, take it away. I was brought up in a fishing village and um, after the war and we didn't have a lot of... um, well, we didn't have music uh, at all. And my father wouldn't have a record player in the house. Then one day when I was 11, my mum decided she'd have had enough of this. So she went and bought a dance set, um, which was a small record player. Yeah. I think it yeah. only played singles and EPs. And you could stack them one upon the other on the spindle. And the little, little lever would sort of drop and drop one down and then it would get the other and drop another trouble is you stack more than three and suddenly drop two they were useless but <laughs> and then it would skid it would sometimes skid oh yeah and then because, because around the center they had the little knobs that were supposed to engage with each other and lock because they didn't because it's plastic they were bouncing all over the place mm-hmm. anyway so she bought a dance set i can't remember what else she bought and she bought an ep of bill haley and the comments right. don't forget i'm 11 and i've never heard music right now i'm 10 and i've never heard music Right? Yes. I mean, I've heard choirs. I sang in the choir, but it's very English, traditional village music. We're not mm-hmm. talking about music, music. We're talking choir music. And there were three tracks on it. His all his hits, uh, "Rock Around the Clock," um, "See You Later, Alligator," and I think there was one other. I can't remember what his big hit was. Uh, but there was a filler track, last track side two. They obviously they they'd ran out songs couldn't think what to do so they did um and it was called i remember quite clearly it was called goofing around and that was obviously what they did in the studio they just did a jam stuck it on the album just to fill it out and it, it had this running bass line and the, the bill Haley in the comments is get this weird clicking noise in the back and i don't know if it was the drummer playing the rims or whether the, the bass player was slapping I've, I've never figured out how they did it it was ding 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 back backbeat wow backbeat I'm going oh my god oh my god oh my god play it again play it again play it again play it again wow I played it probably a hundred times that one track I couldn't believe it I couldn't I heard backbeat and a rhythm for the first time that blew me apart that was it my future was pretty much written from that moment poverty was gonna loom large all the things <laughs> I could have done. <laughs> yeah, I know everyone always says the same, don't they? So what village, what fishing village did you grow up in? Wivenhoe. 
Weaving Ho. Oh, okay, so that was near the great poet, isn't it? Who I now forget his name, who was um, big in the 70s. Well, he probably still is, actually. The, the uh, poet, oh, who's the guy? Um, oh, God. Anyway, my mind went blank there, so let's not worry about the, the poet. It was Colchester, and it's, yes. it, it was down the end of a road, and it finished at a river, and that was it. It um, and it was a very rough little town, but it had a port and it had a, um, a customs post, it, uh, and that's where I grew up. And it was, I hated it when I was growing up there because it was, it was just awful. But when I went back some years ago, when my mum and dad died, and I went back to clear up the effects, and I walked down the river with my dog, it was just wonderful. And of course, it's become very trendy now and very arty. I mean, you can't buy a house in Webinar, it's just ridiculous. Yes, well, I, I realise that in East Anglia, on the coast by Dunwich, Southwold, Walberswick, the prices oh, yeah, yeah. it's exploded. Oh, yes. It was Martin Newell who came from Withenhall, wasn't it? Oh, right. Okay. Mark, the, the kind of the man who sort of appeared in the, the cleaners from Venus. That's the man. Right. Okay. Oh, right. So, yes. So this is kind of the mid. Yeah. So you're obviously a very working class background. Did you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I had a brother, an older brother. He was um, he was born before the war, and I was born after it. And um, then after the war, he was sent off to public school for various reasons I won't go into. And uh, so I grew up pretty much uh, on my own. Um, and my parents were um, they came a very working class stock, but they worked. He became an optician, and they worked their way up um, steadily and slowly over the years, sort of dint of hard work. Really, I mean, my old man didn't have a car until he was past forty. Right. He used to. Yes, that was what it was like in those days. He used to get the bus into work with everybody. They always used to give me the working class, middle class, shop assistants, bank managers. Everybody would chip in. You know, they'd all, all be on the same bus. And then he got to a certain age where he could finally afford a car, and so he drove himself. Yes, so right. they, and wound up captain of the golf club. That was probably the peak of his social life. And, uh, you know, that, that's how they made it. They made it up into middle class. Yes, that's the, yes, and I think that, that 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 generation of the working class never had any debts. From my memory of my parents, they no, would um, they no. would um, they would save and then they'd buy the thing. That, that's that it. Was, that You're was quite right. No, there was no such thing as HP. And they they frowned on it. <laughs> that was a, that was a sign of failing. <laughs> so, so when so after Bill Haley, then when did you start to sort of figure or start to navigate the next well, musical? All moment? goes a bit blank until I sort of think back to. When I was 15, and my mum had an old guitar in the uh, in the uh, cupboard, and that was an old thing left over from the war. I think they gave the American servicemen to play, and it was like a, an old. It was a bit like a, it, it had a. It was a very cheap guitar, but it had an old uh, metal plate on the front, with like an old dobro plate. Yeah, uh, brutal to play, but I started learning on that. Yeah, and uh, cut my fingers to ribbons. But, but then I started. But this has been the early 60s. Did you start to sort of have other influences like the, I don't know, the beat generation of Jack Kerouac and Alan Ginsberg? No, I missed all of that. I missed all of that. What happened was at that time, what were we talking about? 15, I was thinking 46, 56, 61. It was Dylan was the first really big serious writing influence I had, those first three Dylan albums were like a bomb going off you know, in terms of lyrics and and power and self-expression. Uh, so he was hugely influential. But at the same time, I was going to folk clubs, watching people like Alex uh, Harvey, not Alex, Alex Harvey, Alex, um, Scottish comedian and... Um, oh, Bill Conley. 
and 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 people like that. Yeah, the the sort of generation of drunken folk singing entertainers, you might say, with lots of sing-alongs and lots of jokes, and um, I, I, that influenced me greatly because you know I loved to have a laugh. And and um, then I remember at Colchester Folk Club, I saw Arlo Guthrie, and so that was another kind of well, eye-opener that a single person, a solo artist, could could hold an audience that much yes. and pack out, more importantly to me, pack out a club, you know, but yes. it was on seats, it was full. Did you see anybody um, like Paul Simon at that stage coming Yeah, there? And then I got into harmonies, then I got into harmonies, it was Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, and uh, then I got into girl voices, that was Joan Baez, um, and uh, then... I suppose the, really the next big thing for me was Crosby, Stills and Nash first album. That was again another sort of huge jump up in revelation of what you could do with voices and guitars. It was it, to me, it was like a magic kingdom, something you couldn't explain, couldn't understand. All you knew was these people were doing it, and you knew they were doing it because you'd go and see them live doing it. You know, it wasn't uh, yes. there's no studio trickery. So did, um, did people like the Beach Boys come into your now, I never, I never really liked pop, you know, I, I, I appreciated them. And it was sort of background music to your life, if you like, you know, driving around in the car with, with it playing on the radio or something. But it, it, it's, it's not really what got me where I lived. I was into, into words that meant something, beautiful harmonies and amazing guitar playing. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when I was about 19, I went to Bristol and started playing in the Troubadour. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, that's when I first saw Bert Yance. Um, and that was another complete piece of bafflement. I think I watched him three times, sitting on the floor about four foot away from him. Yes. And was... What, what's he doing? Left hand's up here, right hand's there. Well, hang on, he's doing different things with each hand. And he's singing as well. Oh, for God's sake, this is impossible. Oh, now we ought to do this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And did people like Al Stewart, the early folk years of Al Stewart, come into your world? Yeah, I, I, I did some gigs with him, but um, excuse me. <coughs> oh, gosh. I've been out walking the dogs uh, earlier this morning in Cockenden Park, so I've still got a bit of hay fever. Um, hay fever, we love no, that. I, I never got into his music, uh, to be honest, but uh, there you go. Yes, well, that, that, there you go. So things like, you know, the whole kind of counterculture of the 60s and the 67 Summer of Love and, you know, the experience at the Ali Pali with the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, that kind of world didn't interest you. You were just much more into that sort of the traditional folk English. Oh, it interested me, all right. You're joking. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I resisted all temptations to... Um, to experiment until I was 21 and then I sort of got persuaded to smoke a bit of hash by this girl who was I think she was one of the uh, nieces and nephews of the WD WHO Wills family so they were a sort of mighty rich family with a couple of uh, dodgy kids were in, in the midst of and I, and I fell for her big time and uh, so that's when I first turned up 21 and quickly decided this was uh, something I wanted to do uh, in great depth so that started a sort of fairly drug-fueled ride from 21 till about 25 when everything fell apart. <laughs> 
Yes. And Which well, is what drugs, of course, will do. You get a good ride, but, you know, unless you can handle it. It can, it can leave up, a mess. It can well, definitely. Well, you wind up more interested in getting high than writing a song, so. Well, yes, absolutely. And when did you sort of come across, you know, because you did your first album in sort of 69, the Stimulus. When did you first come across people like David Bowie and his kind of the art lab? Uh, That was, uh, I think, I think I met Mary Finnegan. Now, I think she was writing for 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 a magazine and we did an interview and then she introduced me to his club he was don't forget he was a folk singer there and he was a sport act He's, he used to kick it off with a few of his songs yeah uh, and at the time i mean he had a bit of he had a bit of kind of of a following but not much of one really he was you know it, was, it, it wasn't he he didn't appear like he was going anywhere much um and uh, she got me to play there so i was the guest there at his club two or three times when he says I'm supporting me. <laughs> Can't even <laughs> think about it. Um, but then, and then they asked me, he asked me if I'd like to play acoustic guitar on some of the album. Uh, Letter to Hermione is the one that most people know of. Yes. Uh, the six-string guitar in That's Me playing. And we did it all completely on the spur of the moment. I think it was one of those where the they, you know, albums were really expensive to make in those days. I mean, ruinously expensive and he didn't have much backing and certainly I didn't either um and uh I think they were left with a few tracks to to get done and the quickest and easiest way was to get me in with him so there was just the two of us not having to pay loads of sessions in fact I never got paid a penny for any of it <laughs> thanks guys you know but then in those days you didn't ask did you, you no know, more materialistic would have said what, how much is my bunce? But unfortunately, I was more sort of hippy trippy type. Hey man, it's great to play. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, never yes, mind it's all, Music is free. What are you worries about that? Eh? Cool, it's cool, man. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, until you need it, <laughs> then it's not cool. But anyway, so I played those four tracks on um, on that album, and then that didn't seem to be going anywhere. anywhere of course, until he did Space Oddity, and that, as they say, changed everything. And the next time I saw him, he flew me to New York for to try out as Mick Ronson's replacement on lead guitar, which was a completely ridiculous thing because I could never play electric guitar. Uh, I have no idea how to play the things at all, but I bought one and I, someone had seen me playing it somewhere and reported back to him I was playing electric guitar. So the next day I want to play to New York to try out for Diamond Dogs. Um, a... a, a uh, a what is it called a um not an interview what do you oh it? audition audition mm-hmm. uh, i could say it was an audition that i failed dramatically yes. but i met a nice girl there and i stayed there for a week and had great fun and that was new york yes and did and was it a bit just on that point was it a bit of a surprise having seen folky david and then wow you've you, things have slightly changed in the last three years or four years from diamond dogs uh, yeah, just a bit. I mean, he was uh, he was right in the middle of the madness by that time. You know, the uh, the, the 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 range of hangers on he had was quite startling. It's like as a old old style king's retinue, you know, with, uh, with all these strange courtiers of various types and stripes and proclivities and ranges of whatever. You know, it was uh, it's quite a circus. It was. Um, a, it would have and, been. And he was right at the heart of it. I, I remember. Um, I remember being in the hotel room 
he wanted to go out clubbing, but before he could go out, someone had told him he had to see, I think it was someone like David Cassidy or something like that, who was searching for a hit. And uh, I was sat in his hotel room with uh, um, the Cassidy and his, I think it was David Cassidy and his girlfriend, looking very miserable and very tense and very pensive. And um, I was just having a good time. So, you know, just uh, there he was. And then he went in and half an hour later, he came out looking miserable, walked past without a word. And that was the end of that. It, was not, it wasn't going to be another Mott the Hoople for him. So, uh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, he was right at the heart of, of a very big machine by that time. Yes. And did you, I mean, just going back to your period of 68, 69, when you bring the album out, did you, was it that year before that you'd written all the material for your first album? Yeah, yeah, it's it, about a year and a half's worth, I suppose. Well, two years worth. Um, yeah. And uh, and it, it, we went into the studio um, when it was a four track. Um, how on earth they managed to bounce it all down, I don't know, but most of the Beatles was done on four track. So I mean, uh, it just goes to show what you can do if you've got the time. Yes. Uh, we didn't have the time, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Real fast and get it done. I guess so. that was the first one, that was Stimulus. Then there was Favourite of the Wings, which I personally uh, loved doing. Um, yeah. And the one that most people think is the best one of the three, then that was in 71, that was Pygmy. Yeah. And did you feel that you were part of a kind of a movement at that stage? Because there had been people oh, like Arlo Guthrie, but there had been Melanie had sort of appeared in Woodstock at that same time. And then obviously a lot of folk, folk singers and... You know, was it was it a feeling that you were sort of on the zeitgeist? Yeah, it was. It was a especially the middle album, uh, 1970, London, 1970. It was a it was a really interesting time. And there's there's that book, um, 1971. Sort of, yes, David Hepworth. A lot, a lot going on or something. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. Never yes. That's that set in 71. So I mean, there was a staggering amount happening, and. Yeah, it was just a very exciting time, and I did feel part of a movement. We all felt like we were going to change the world. Um, the drugs and the LSD were all going to change us, and bit by doing that, we would write our songs and change the world. And I suppose to some degree, for a short while, we did. Yes. When you look back at what we were able to do then and the things that kids could hitchhike right away across the world to places that you couldn't even go now with a private army. No. Um, and so uh, yeah, there was a, it was a very free place, the world. In those and days. did you? And at that stage, because in the 1970 we had the, you know like Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Janis Joplin died. Then Woodstock, Altamont, Charles Manson. At the same time, there was also a lot of optimism in in the air as well. And everything was kind of new. There wasn't anything that you could go and go. Oh yeah, this has been done before. I kind of can see a pattern. Did how did you sort of emotionally cope during that period with so much? change going on you know and so much well, kind of... I, I was still doing a degree I mean I kept on doing a degree so I, I would have to move every six months I'd have to go from um, Bath <clears throat> and then I'd have to travel up to uh, London or Manchester or Bournemouth or places they the firm the engineering firm put me it was John Lang the en engineers and um, so London especially so then I re-established myself for six months in the middle of all this, and then I'd have to go back to being a student again. Obviously, while I was being a student, I was writing songs, I was dashing up to London to make records, I was doing gigs, I was coming in at six in the morning, um, having a pill and going into lectures at eight, in nine. Um, it was a pretty wild time, and, and 
as you do when you're young, it was both ends and the middle burning the candle. Um, so there wasn't really time to think about what your place in the scheme of things was. You were just doing it. It's a bit like being a dog, really. You're living in the moment. Yeah, um, barking away. Yeah. yeah. But one thing I remember quite clearly was I used to do gigs at the Roundhouse, and um, they were great fun. You know, you, I mean, daft stuff. I'd get on stage with Arthur Brown, and we just jam a whole set for an hour and a half. Um, and I do my own gigs with myself and with a band and all sorts, and support a lot of guys. And then one day, I think it was about, uh, yeah, 73, 74, I did a gig and it just felt like everything was different. Somebody had come in and smashed up the dressing room and scroll stuff on the wall. I went to sit there in this bag I used to carry, a shoulder bag, I put it down between the seat and somebody came along and stole it. And there was just suddenly an atmosphere that was completely different. And that was what the what you're tying in with the Altamont and the sort of complete drop in consciousness to a lower level. I mean, if people get take drugs, some people are going to get addicted to them. If you get addicted to them, you haven't got any way of earning money, you steal mm-hmm. or you prostitute or you do something. You do bad things. Your life goes wrong. And you could feel that happening in 73 in London, straight away, 73, 74. Right. And at that point, then I went to America for two years, so I got myself out of it, luckily, but... Yes. And were you, I mean, did it feel, again, you know, because there'd been, you know, you'd mentioned Bert Gantz and there'd been David Graham and that sort of folk tradition, but then you had people like Comus come along, an incredible string band, and this kind of experimentation. Did that also fuel fuel your kind of creative kind of awareness and kind of idea of experimentation? I will be honest with you, I was never into bands like that. I, I was one of the few people that couldn't stand the string band, and I was one of the few people that couldn't stand the Grateful Dead. I liked I liked hard rock blues band. I liked um, like the Allman Brothers, people like that. I loved I loved um, what was it? I loved Crosby, Stills, and Nash until Neil Young joined them um, and took over really. Um, but I loved blues bands and I loved rock, and so. The sort of hippie trippy flowers in the meadow kind of stuff I couldn't relate to. They just never related to it. Um, not that meant I didn't write some of the dance stuff myself, you know. Sometimes you've got to play and write stuff that you don't actually listen to. No, this is true. <laughs> this is true. And what was the first Glastonbury Festival? You were there, weren't you? The famous 1971 organized by Dave. Was it was Andrew Kerr part of that gang at that stage? I have no idea. Uh, but you've got the date wrong. It's and everyone is doing this now. This is 71. 71 is when people are now saying the first festival was because it had a pyramid. Yes. The first festival was the year before with anything but a pyramid. It was it was like a a, a scaffolding stage with canvas sides and top. And yes. a very rudimentary PA and boards that jumped around when you when you trod on them. And that so was the stage. That was 1970. Yes. And that was the first First Glastonbury. Make sure you tell everybody. I will make sure that, yeah, because I think the the problem is in 71, they had the film, didn't they? And that was the one that people going to go to. Yeah, it was the big one. 
it was it was the first one where the ideas case sort of came together i think and a lot of other people got involved with a lot of creativity you can't do things on, on your own in this world if you wanted something big you've got to do it with other people and i think that that's the classic difference between 70 and 71 is that in 70 michael was branching out with this brave experiment that uh, you know sort of went wrong but it also went right because he didn't get the kinks because they decided you know it wasn't for them um, and blew their contract out but at the same time um, he got Mark Boland who trailed down from London with a great retinue of a couple of thousand people and uh, I'd left by then it was a pity really I wish I'd stay behind to see it but uh, apparently it was really great. Yes and you were on with Quintessence Stackridge Al Stewart. Yeah. So what was your memory of that festival like? Because obviously it was a very small, a different I haven't one. got any. This is the trouble. I, I wish I could. I wish I could tell you chapter and verse of, of everything about it. But I honestly cannot remember doing it, being there, playing it, being on stage or anything. The photographs tell me I was there. Um, but and my mates, apparently I gave all my mates from this commune I was living in. Um, when was it? 70? Yeah in Bristol we were we were living in the house in Bristol gave a load of lifts down there's my roadie so I got a gang of mates in for nothing um and they've got better memories of it than I have but uh, I remember it's a bit cold and it was a bit, a bit sort of gloomy and depressing and cold it was a funny little stage and weren't many people there um and it was just just a gig a gig a gig because interesting because a lot of um, you know bands and artists I've interviewed they, they often have this five-year narrative they get together obviously in the band and, you know, they have that first year practice in the, the sort of the second year, often, you know, the things start to happen if they're going to happen. And the first album, a bit more touring, then a bit of a tricky second, third album. And then by the five years, it's all getting a bit tricky or difficult. I mean, you you were really on it, weren't you, for that first period of the 70s? Did you, was it kind of a sense of you were on a mission at that stage? No, I was on a mission to stay out of doing a job. I mean, that was when I was at university, you know, and I started making records there uh, in 69. So I was in my second year, I think, made the first record. In the third year, I made the second album. It was in my final year when I made the last album, the first three, this is 69, 70, 71. So, you know, basically it was by the time I got to Pygmy, 71, I was working in an office in Langs. I'm looking out the window thinking, there is no way I want to do this. And I got up, went to see the boss, told him I was leaving and uh, and walked out. That was it. And I never went back to do a job of work again for another 20 years. Um, so it's obviously I knew that I wanted to do that. But also, I have to say, then once my management, Sandy Robertson, decided to drop all his acts in 71, 72 and go to America. And um, so I found myself woefully unprepared to cope with life without somebody, uh, a university and a manager. I had a university and a manager. Yes, you, know, you had a timetable. A 21 year old, you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot of support. Yes. When suddenly both were gone and I was on my own. I think I made a series of absolutely ludicrous, ludicrous life decisions, which led to almost complete extinction in my career. And it's only got revived in 74 because I was living down the road from Peter Sinfield, who um, I toured with when I toured with King Crimson, their second incarnation, straight out of university, straight on the road, touring with Boz Burrell in my car, 
uh, all the way around the country because he'd fallen out with Bob Fripp um, and uh, Peter Sinfield on, on, on the deck and doing the lights. And so I knew Peter and he was down the road from me and he said, I've got a song, got some words. So I put some music to him, sang it. He took it to Greg Lake, said, this is great. Let's sign the guy. So suddenly, once again, at least I had a structure and I had, um, I had a manager and I had a record company again. So yes. it was the next album. Then I went to America for two years and did the fifth and final vinyl. Right. So, God, I, just, I was just reading an article about these Olympic athletes who, you know, suddenly have just, you know, a bit like what you just experienced there, you know, where you just like 24-7 doing one thing and then suddenly going, by the way, it's over now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you've got no life skills, you have no idea, but it's, you're on your own and you're an adult. It's like, oh dear, that's not good. So, okay, so after Pygmy, did you then go to America after that? Or did you, and then, was that your two years? Oh, I had the brilliant life decision to leave London, where of course, I mean, I don't know what happened with Sandy Robertson. I don't think I'll ever know. Um, he just said, I can't get you a deal. I've tried everybody. Nobody wants to record you or sign you. And then suddenly that was it. I was walking out of his office, not knowing what I was going to do. So I went back to Bath where my flat was. And uh, I decided I was going to start a commune. There you are. Fantastic thing to do. And you mentioned third vinyl. Start a commune, but not somewhere interesting. No, right in the heart of the Somerset countryside, where you could be about as lost as you could get. And I've uh, outside of Bath, I suppose, and I found this old farmhouse and I've persuaded some musicians to move in with me. They lasted a week. And so I'm left there in this great big farmhouse on my own with rent to pay. So I've managed to persuade a bunch of friends who are living in Bristol to also come out and start a commune at this Newbury farm. And that became a Bristol band called Magic Muscle. And we were often visited by uh, Lemmy of Hawkwind and um, the Hells Angels would turn up for a happy weekend bash. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I'll say it was an experience, but in terms of getting gigs, it was pretty catastrophic because, um, you know, once you're out of it, you're out of it in music, that's it. Yes, well, that's amazing. That, that almost makes me laugh because I'm um, all smile. Because, um, well, two things. There was, there was a, communes was quite a thing, wasn't it? I know Richard Thompson hung, you know, came into Suffolk, didn't he? And there was another band called the Great Trucking Company who also had a commune. They all lived together. The Village Trucking Company. Yeah, I went there. I went there a few times. Um, yeah, it was in Suffolk. It's in Suffolk, where, where I'm from. Where I'm from. All scions of the wealthy. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I'm doing an interview with one of the 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 guy who's the 17th or 20th in line for the the King of England or something later yeah. this afternoon. Dan Lascelles, is it? Yes. Jeremy. Jeremy Lascelles. Yes. Yeah, they had a house, they had a flat in London at the time Jeremy Thorpe was in the middle of his uh, court case. I won't stay there. That was a weird atmosphere. Um, <laughs> but the flat, but the commune, I remember something. I mean, you can ask Jeremy if he remembers this. But I, I turned up and there was nowhere to stay. But they said, oh, that's all right. Bunty is going away. Um, you can have Bunty's bed. And I said, well, who's Bunty? And Bunty was somebody's grandmother. She was about 80-something, and she was tiny, and she was a sort of fearsome matriarch of much of this. And her room was, was like a monk's cubicle. And the bed, I kid you not, was an inch of horsehair mattress. 
No one in this world has ever slept on horsehair except a few people, and I'm one of them. And, and a pillow with that sort of stripe ticking with, with God knows what was in that pillow. Straw, probably. <laughs> and a thin army blanket. And I froze my ass off all night. It was the worst night's sleep I've ever had. And this old dear used to sleep in it every night. Bunty. Well, there you go. That's the 70. You can, you can smell the patchouli. Well, you can almost... Oh, you, can. you could. Patchouli must have been quite popular as well as hash. So what was... Because what was... Because um, Lemmy in that stage, he'd been with the Rock and Vickers, was in Hawkwind before getting chucked out. What was he like in that, that, that early period? Uh, I can't remember much, but I mean, I remember when he'd been in Hawkwind a while and they were, they were already very well established. He used to... Um, going to my pub when I was living in Notting Hill Gate. This was sort of post-America 77, 78. And I lived in a bedsit and uh, I was on the dole because my music, I couldn't write and I couldn't play. And so I just sort of, I sort of got myself back together again in this one little room in Notting Hill. <coughs> but I used to drink and I think it was a Princess Victoria or one of the pubs around the corner. And that was Lemmy's local. And he used to go in there with a big bag of cash and he'd stand there and he'd play the fruit machine all night and have a few drinks and drink. That was Lemmy. And I met him at a party and uh, it was at six in the morning. And I said, do you want to lift home? And he said, uh, yeah. So I gave him a lift back. And he lived in the most unlikely place, which was a, a, an upper floor of a little uh, semi-detached suburban house. Somewhere out in Enfield or somewhere like that with a landlady downstairs. And he was upstairs. I had to be very quiet until we didn't wake her up. And he made us a coffee and he showed me a scrapbook and he had a complete scrapbook of all his music and everything. It was, it was the most unlemmy like thing yes. that, you know, I could ever imagine, but kind of made sense as well. Because one thing I did discover with Lemmy very early on is don't ever try and get into some kind of um, trial of wits with him mental, mentally because it beat you every time. He's one of the sharpest, funniest, cleverest men I ever knew. Quiet, but very, very clever. And you couldn't, uh, if you tried sort of a bit of sparring with him, you better not. <laughs> God, that's that's amazing. The, the the trucking company, indeed, they were good. So, um, yes, they've just been, yeah. Oh, well, that's that's fast. That's great. I'm glad you you had a night in Suffolk, even if it was on horsehair experience and the delights of a freezing cold commune it was it was the thing though at the time wasn't it communes were definitely a thing so after wait a minute so after your commune experience when did that when did you decide to do a you know that's the end of the commune i'm definitely never doing well it sort of decided for me i mean i was finding getting gigs from out in the middle of the countryside harder and harder you see you know it's, it's a precarious life gigging if you've got no other source of income really precarious and being naive and, and having to work things out for myself for the first time in my life, I didn't take into account that if you're living in somewhere like London or Birmingham or Cardiff or somewhere, you've got a lot of gigs, A, on your doorstep, B, just outside, and C, not a difficult drive to get to you know, 100 miles away. If you're living in the depths of Somerset, you've got a 100-mile drive before you even get to anywhere civilised. Mm. So travelling and petrol costs, everything, were adding up and adding up. And the gigs were getting less and less and less because I was out of any influence uh, away from the, the core of music, if you like, heart of the matter, which is London. Um, but then Peter threw me this line line. He was living just down the road in a little cottage 
um, he threw me this lifeline with uh, with his song. And the next thing, I'm squatting on a friend's sofa back in London making Brighter Day. Brighter Day. There you go. That all happens. And then obviously you you were bouncing straight into stories. So what, oh yeah, what did you do in America for two years and where did you live? Sat in my ass by the pool. Um, did very little actually, except force myself to write an album full of songs and, and recorded them. Uh, I, I, I actually, looking back, think I made some good friends at the end of two years there. And, uh, but looking back, I think that was an opportunity I could have made a lot more. The problem was that when you've been a musician for about 10 years, you forget how to be anything else. I mean, it's, it's, that's why so many musicians find it very difficult when their careers come to an end to adapt to life outside of music. They, they keep trying to carry on. Mm. Basic fact of the matter is really you've got to do something different. I, I should have gone and worked in a shop or hitched up with a carpenter and learned a trade or worked in a gas station filling cars in California. I should have done something other than just sit there saying I'm a musician, you know, and that was an opportunity I missed because I could have probably bagged myself a green card eventually there and uh, probably wind up with dual, dual nationality, but not to be. I, I just kept going. But of course, Again, you're at the mercy of other forces all the time. Once the management decided the album was done, I was sent back to England with nowhere to live and uh, no money. And right. that was probably the worst time of life, 76 through 77. It was just catastrophic. It was awful. Yeah. The too. Well, that, yeah, wasn't good. <laughs> Did you get, were you in LA then in, in that American period? Yeah, yeah. Right. Living on Sunset Boulevard. I lived in a, a, a wonderful old rundown building called our, our Sunset Tower and it's now an incredibly swanky hotel but it was then the only art deco building left in California in uh, Los Angeles that they hadn't demolished yeah. and they tried to demolish that but apparently one of the one of the tenants on the top floor it was Colonel Clink in Hogan's Heroes he, he refused to move out and an English guy bought it and they stopped the developers and that's why it's still there today. Nice. Well, there you go. There you go. So then you did two albums. Well, the first album then, Brighter Day, was was written in America. Then you recorded no, it. No, that was written in England, and um, that was also a bit of a collection of songs, some old, some new. But that was done in England with um, a, a great long cast of people. I mean, people like Greg Lake, when they sort of decide to get people in, they get people in. You know, you don't get a harmonica player in. You get the guy that did the theme from Dixon of Doc Green. You know, you don't get a harp player in. You get Skylar Kanga from the uh, Royal Symphony Orchestra. You know. Yes. So how did it? No half measures. No half measures. This was a label that was started by Emerson Lake and Palmer, wasn't it? it Manticore. Manticore. So you had money. They gave you lots of cash, didn't they, on that? Well, they didn't give me I was sleeping on, don't forget, you missed that bit where I said I was uh, squatting on a friend's sofa when I made, that was my home. That's that was where I lived. On <laughs> some sofa, all my bedding was behind the sofa. And uh, I come in from recording at six in the morning, very quietly, so I was not to wake uh, this guy and his wife and their new kid and pull the bedding out, make my bed up and sleep. Right. Yes. That was life. Was that was that the time that you were appeared on the old Grey Whistle Test and did your a cappella version of Robin Hood? It was later. That was when I came back. Actually, uh, no, it was. Yeah, you're quite right. Bet you pardon. Seventy four or seventy five. Yes. So no, seventy four. There was a there was a, a sort of confident swagger on that clip, isn't there? 
It certainly is. I mean, um, yeah, I was full of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've I, I, I got the video of it still. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful timepiece. So when were you recording stories from the human zoo? Did that, was that, a, did you go into that feeling confident or was there a sense this was going to be the, the sort of so-called, you know, like actually we're going to record this and that's it? Because I know from talking to some artists, it's like, you know, the feeling wasn't kind of great, but they go for it. And sometimes it's good. So I just wonder what the feeling was when you went into that album. Well, somebody that very much with that first comment. I think when I, when I did Stimulus, it was all just brand new. Uh, when I did... Table of the Wings, I was kind of flying a bit. Pygmy, I loved doing it. It was a classy album. Um, but after that, um, when, we, when, when I got dropped by the management and I went and lived in the commune, your confidence starts to erode very quickly in this business. I mean, uh, unless you're, you're somebody who's a bit of a, a, a Walter Mitty, a self-fantasist that can delude yourself that things are really great when they're not. Unfortunately, mm. I had far too clear a vision of how badly things were going wrong. And so when I did Bride of Day, I was very grateful to be back in the studio and back recording, but I can't say I had much faith in it. And when I went to America, uh, I, I didn't think anything would come of any of it. And that's an awful thing to say when you're spending people's money and you're making records and everybody got them. I mean, I had some fantastic musicians, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, people like that, giving their hands at all to make this record as good as they could. But I was listening back to it and thinking, this ain't going to sell a bean. You know, it's, it's not good. The songs aren't good enough. They're not catchy enough. It's not in tune with what's going on. And I just knew it was all just, uh, you know, vast waste of time and money. But... What can you do? You know, you you can't turn around and people say, no, I'm not going to do it. No. So, oh, you know, you say, yeah, fine, great, let's get in the studio and I'll write the songs. You always hope it'll work out, but I can't say I had any faith in it. And I remember quite clearly sitting on a DC-10 coming back from LA with the masters in the overhead locker thinking, this is the end. Right. It was. There you go. It's not good, is it? So then did you, in sort of 76, 77, did you did you make a conscious decision to um to sort of give it a you know a break? No, I was so desperately short of of luck and money, and a friend got me a um, uh, my friend got me a bedsit, and I I sort of I went to ground there for two years basically. I sort of started rebuilding my life, and slowly but surely I rebuilt who I was and what I wanted, and I got to the about 1978, um, 79, and uh, somebody offered me a job digging holes in the ground for £20 a day, and I took it. That was it. Right. That's when I, I finally decided that I had to go and earn some money. I couldn't. You see, the trouble is when, you, when you've got no money and you're skin and you're a musician, somebody, people can offer you whatever deal they want. You haven't got no bargaining power at all. You just take anything that's offered, and, and half the time you wind up chasing your tail. You're chasing... Yes. songwriting trends and themes and ideas trying to sort of get back on the get back on the moving uh, escalator but you can't you really the best thing is just walk away completely that's what i did then i just walked away yeah blimey but you walked away for a very long time didn't you i mean i've bought out things i mean i mean i had love beyond deals out in the late 90s that's that that got 
tremendous reviews. I've had I had a, a, a band Weatherman, my band Weatherman, my blues band. That, yeah. that was well received. But nothing. It's just I can't. I find it hard to describe it. I know that it just was there, but it was not there. You know, it was okay. It was okay. It was worthy. It was worthy with enough flashes of a good lyric here and a good bit of play in there and a nice idea there, but there were only flashes. Yes. That only suddenly came together when I when I got to 70. When I got to 70, I sat down and wrote um, Crazy Dancing Days. Then all of a sudden, I was into a new game. Oh, good. So look, what happened then in 1991 when you formed your band? Did you, did you sort of, because because I have spoken to a lot of musicians who, you know, had very similar experience and some, and it was interesting because there was one guy who just said he just went into the, he just went into the woods, built himself a bar for, and sat in the wood for about two years to recover from the experience of that madness of yeah. being an yeah. artist and just didn't yeah. want to come out until he felt a bit sane again. But he said it just yeah. kind of completely wrecked his brain. So he said, that's, that's what a lot of people do. You just go into a wood, build, build a bar and sit there on your own for a couple of years. until a you bar? A bar, a wooden, you know, just a bar, just sit by a bar in the, in a, all right. In a wood, you know, he, he, I don't, he, he sounded like he lived in a caravan in a wood and he built yes. himself a bar and just sat there wondering what to do yeah. for the rest of his life. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I did the same with, um, with Notting Hill Gate, Colville Square. I just went to the ground for two and a half years and, um, and, and, and just did simple things. Like I remember the first day I decided I was going to repaint the shutters. You know, to me, that was like, and it sounds awful, but it, it's, it's when people talk about mental illness and, and, and uh, they talk about small struggles, you know, to do huge struggles, to do small things. And suddenly this was me imposing myself back on a life which had completely imposed itself on me. I had no power, no decision making, no money, no future, nothing. I had nothing. And one day I heard the landlord said, can I buy a tin of, can you buy me a tin of paint? He bought me a tin of paint and I painted my shutters. And it was little things like that. Long way up from the gutter, I can tell you. But, mm -hmm. you know, you keep going and eventually, yeah, get back to normal again. Yeah. So when you did the album Love, Love Beyond Deals, you were on a small label called HTD Records. Did yeah. you, did you suddenly, did people, because that's the other thing I've <clears throat> noticed that sometimes things just move on. Everyone goes, yeah, that was great. Thanks. <laughs> we loved your music, but things have changed now. And then mm -hmm. a few decades later, people go, actually, I've just discovered you or God, what have you been up to? Do you want to make a new album? You go, oh, okay, then. You know, and the and the sort of like, yeah, I could I could get my guitar out of the cupboard and start doing stuff. Did it was what was your experience in the mid nineties then? Well, it was not far off that because mm -hmm. I was I was working. I had a best friend and uh, forty years, Martin, and Martin was my best buddy for four years, and unfortunately, uh, he died of, um, of emphysema in France some years ago. So I've lost my best friend, but we worked together. He was, he was one of those Renaissance men that could play a brilliant bass, had a lovely voice, could play piano, great carpenter, fantastic plasterer, you know, you name it, that man could do it. Um, left school at 15, but, you know, had skill sets like, you know, you find it hard to believe really. But Martin was, was we, we worked together on renovating pieces, people's houses in the 80s, early 80s property boom in London. Um, you know, Streatham and Clapham and um, all those places that were suddenly rocketing in value and we were in there doing people's houses up. And um, we were also playing 
wine bars and pubs. We had a duo and he played bass and sang and I played guitar and sang. We sang my songs and um, we were doing that. And we went and did a gig at Dartford Folk Club. Um, and these two hairy blokes came up and said, hi, I'm, um, oh, now who was HTD? Malcolm, anyway, you'll have to look it up. I can't yes. um, he, they, he came up, Malcolm was his assistant, that's right. Um, uh, he came up and said, um, we're interested in old farts that have still got it. <laughs> That was it. I was sold. So uh, he put me in the studio with Ashley Hutchins producing and a host of wonderful players, Phil Beer, Chris Wilde, Julie Matthews on vocals, Helen Watson on vocals, John Kirkpatrick on squeeze box, Brendan Power on harmonica. Yeah, it was. Uh, and so we put this album together. Yeah. And, and was it generally a good experience? Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Although I, I sort of started to... I started to get the hint by then. I think I was teaching, I might have been teaching by then. I can't remember whether I'd started teaching or not. I made a conscious decision. I was looking at friends around me in the music business who were getting on a bit. When I say getting on a bit, I laugh now. I was probably yeah. like 40 something, you know. <gasps> well, that old man. Um, but not having put money away. You can't put money away unless you suddenly become famous. You know, you don't put money away, you just survive. And of course, as you get older, it becomes harder. And then suddenly, you know, a level of poverty is calling. And I was looking at some very famous, people in the very famous that didn't appear to have a lot of resources and, and fallback for if things were gonna go wrong. So that was one of the reasons I decided I was gonna take a teaching job and start my life again and did that for 20 years and to get myself a pension and also put more stability back into life. Yeah. Because uh, I was getting a bit old by the time I was 40, so I'm going to be climbing scaffolding at... Um, you're not going to dig a hole, you're not digging holes at 40, are you? Let's face it. What, 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 was, your, what was your subject teaching? Uh, I taught craft and then I taught IT. Perfect, isn't it? You go. Did that, in a, in, a way, in a weird way, did that take the pressure off thinking, oh, the music... Because, again, there's a few people I know who were in a band and they thought, this is great, but I can't work out how you're going to make money, but I'm going to get a... I mean, they were lecturers and they still are. And then the music is the, is the evenings and the weekends. And actually, the, the pressure of not having to think, oh, I've got to make this album that's got to do well. It's like, I don't really care because I've got a day job and the music could do its own thing. Did that, did that kind of help you kind of emotionally to deal, you know, because you started becoming quite prolific later on, didn't you? Yeah, um, it did. And um, <clears throat> um, being in a demanding job like that, you don't have a lot of time to sit and write. I mean, writing is, it, it is a, a, a business, create any creative, whether it's painting or art or writing or anything, you do need time. You know, you, this idea that you can go out and do a full day's work, be stressed off your head, come down, sit down, suddenly write a song. Well, it'd be lovely if you could, but it's usually when you're in a space where you've got a bit of head, headroom around you, you can sort of think ideas through. But I did keep playing and I kept doing things and on various degrees of sort of, there was some years I was, I was quite on it and some years I wasn't on it. And, 
you know, uh, it, it, it did take the pressure off because then there's a different kind of pressure. The pressure then is to do your job and do it properly. Yes. Do the best you can and, uh, you know, stay out of trouble with the parents and... Uh, and get hassled about Ofsted, it, I guess. the head with a big stick, you know. Yes, having to write reports and Ofsted reports and all That's that kind of stuff. one, absolutely. Must have been fun. So then... you right straight, that does. Brings you right down to earth. Yes, the real... <laughs> A huge dose of reality. Um, oh, yeah. So, so did it? Because I know, I mean, it must have been strange seeing people that you had worked with in the sort of early seventies, late sixties, seventies, and their life. I mean, and obviously, you know, David Bowie died around the same time that you brought out that album, which you mentioned, Crazy Dancing Days, and he brought out Black Star, which was kind of one of those incredible kind of pieces of work that you think, blimey, that was that's incredible. He's nearly 70 and he's, he's just released one of the best albums. So do you find as an artist that there's always that kind of, well, we can still do it because you are still the, that generation who are kind of at the forefront of modern music, really, aren't you? I, well, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't like to say that, but um, there was definitely, I definitely remember getting to 30 in America um, thinking, this is pretty much over now. You're not going to make it much in music after 30 because it's a young person's game. You know? I remember thinking 30, pff, that was it really. And then life just became... <laughs> what a long battle to keep yourself straight after that, really. Um, so, yeah, so I, I plunged through 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, you know, I'm thinking, you know, by the time I got to 60, I have to say I was starting to feel a bit better about life generally. I think things was, had finally taken all these years to shake down. I was still able to play, but I wasn't worried about playing. And But always hanging over this is this idea that your creativity as at a peak when you're in your 20s. Yes. A la Dylan, a la so many great writers in your 20s. And that as you go through years, it falls away because somehow your mental processes aren't as powerful or as profound. You know, you, you haven't got the energy that drives this great machine that creates the ideas. And I get to 69 years of age and I sit down at the glass table in the jeep in France and suddenly all these songs come pouring out of me. And I where the hell have they been? Where have you been? Where were you when I was 20? You, yes. you know, yeah. I could have already done something with this all those years ago. Why have you suddenly decided to appear out of nowhere? But, oh, I've just written another one. Two weeks. I was there. I wrote set starts of seven songs. Seven. It used to take me two years to write seven songs. No, no. Yeah, and I had to chuck one out because it was crap, but I mean, uh, that still left me six. Yeah, in the old days, that would have gone on the other one. You're halfway there, aren't you? Just got to go home and finish off the other six then, which I did. Did it feel, was it the pressure then of, of, you obviously just retired as well at that stage, hadn't you? So it must, did you just feel like actually there's, I've got that freedom that I had when I was back, back in those days in the sort of 60s? Yeah, yeah, there is. There is definitely a feeling that, if you want to go and sit, you know, you've got to have a very understanding why. I mean, I had to put this to her and I said, look, you know, because we'd never normally go away on, on our own. We'd never normally spend time apart. We don't like it. We like each other's company. We like to be together. But this was just something that was bugging me so much. I kept thinking, I'm going to try and write a song. That's all I wanted to do is just see if I could write a song because I just stopped. Yes. And somehow, yes, you're in this wonderful space where you have, a solid, steady life. You're living in a very nice house. 
you're comfortable, your wife's clever, she's a, she's a clever woman. And so much of your life now is, is settled. And yet in the middle of it, you suddenly find this great big space. And in the middle of this space, there's all these ideas that have been lurking in the, in the darkness. And they all start popping up, bing, 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 woo, like that. And there you go, you, you grab hold of them. Rough and running. And yeah. I, just, I just felt such a rush. I was, I was babbling on the phone. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Where's this all come from? Well, I don't believe it. I write more now than I did when I was 20. It's ridiculous. No, 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 no. And then, then so I did. And then I came back. I did about a year of gigs, and then 18 months I wrote the next one, Life Life. No. Was, so did you, did you set up your own record label at this stage? No, I just call it BECM because that's, that's, it's, a, it's a domain name I own. Back in the 80s, I was going to do website design, so I couldn't think of anything that hadn't been taken, so I thought BC. Right, nice BCN. one. Okay, so um, now if I, when I have to fill in these forms for PRS and MC Business, record label, I go, BECN Records. <laughs> <laughs> Does that, does that mean that you've kind of also sort of gone back and sorted out your back catalogue and got some sort of kind of ownership or sort of some archive on that? I, I don't know. Well, I did sort out my publishing so that I managed to retrieve most of my publishing. Um, but the rights to old records, I've got no rights over any of them because they're still owned by Sandy or whoever he sold them to. So um, I got no say of what happens when, I mean, some companies just bought out my first two albums on vinyl. There you go. Who knew? Know. Nobody bothered to tell me. And, <laughs> uh, you know, what am I going to, you know, it's a, it's a company with no phone number and uh, good luck contacting them via email. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I got no control of that. I'll just, I'm not really interested. I mean, I've, I've, I've just started a project of, I don't know if you can see in the background on the windowsill, there's a pile of cassette deck tapes. Yeah, I've got my cassette player here and I'm transferring loads of old stuff onto, onto digital uh, just really for a bit of fun. And, and I do a thing called Download of the Month, which is a free track on Bandcamp. Oh, so yes. People can download a track for free. Well, sometimes they do a donation, which is always very gratefully received. Um, and, and I was I was getting a bit short of stuff, so I thought I'd go through them. And another thing I did was, <laughs> if you look here, you see, um, you see, a, a yes. stamp signed across and taped over. And that's how we used to copyright songs. You write the titles of the song on the back, and then you post it to yourself and just keep the label. And so you could open this object up in future times and prove you wrote that song on that day. Now, it's all completely meaningless because you've got, only got to stick it up on YouTube, it's date stamp and that's the end of that, isn't it? Yes. So God, that's a mystery. Because almost in front of you, get a pair of scissors and cut through this. Uh, where's the scissors thing? Can't find them, they're out there somewhere. Cut through this and reveal it hasn't been seen since. Hmm, can't see the date. Oh, <laughs> here we are. It is 2008, 26th of January 2008. And that's when you wrote it. And I've, yeah, and I've got a box full of these and I'm ripping them out one by one. There's no point in keeping them. 
I was only moving house soon anyway. I've got to have a big clear out. And there we are. That's what I wrote, January 2008. There you go. Three customs, songs. customs yeah. man. The blues, customs man and duty days. And I shall record them all onto... Um, Bandcamp. All onto uh, digital. And then chuck it in the bin. Yes, I know. Archiving. Have you spent a lot of time in the last year archiving all your stuff? Obviously you are because you're moving. Just starting it now, that's what I'm saying. I'm starting to get all this stuff off tape on the digital. Um, not for any great reason, although I just want to put it away and forget about it. You know, it, it, I keep finding boxes full of stuff. <laughs> I find this box full of old magazines I'm in. Phone roots, melody making. What do I want it for? Yeah. It's, it's, it, I can read an article about myself from 1971. I'm not interested in what happened in has got absolutely no interest in me whatsoever. Where's my next bloody album coming from? That's what's bothering me most. I can't yes. write a damn song because of COVID. I, I've absolutely had the clampers. Life Life, I had that out in just at the end of 2019. It sold a bomb. It has been a really, really popular album. For the first time, I had people saying, I play this all the time. I've got this on repeat play. I play this every day when I go into work in the cup and people are playing it like part of their daily life because there's songs in it that calms. Or it's a completely different album, Life Life. Mm -hmm. It's no politics. There's very little edge in it. It's just peaceful songs about things I see and stuff. You know, it, it's the best writing I've ever done by an absolute country mile. Just done in a single studio, a friend of mine, Chris Coolstone in Warminster, um, runs um, library music. And I just sat down there and I went through the whole, I just did the whole thing in an afternoon and a bit the next day. And that's it. So it's just solo again, because I can't afford massive musicians and budgets. But at the same time, I don't really want to, because I don't want to go and play in a club where people have heard an album with five backing musicians on it and a string section because I can't recreate it. So no. I just make them solo. So people can go to, the, go, go to the gig, buy one, sign it, take it home, and there's the gig again. So it's been a really successful album, Life Life. 2019, and I had an absolute raft of gigs. I mean, that's another wonderful thing. After years and years and years, so many years, and this is a depressing bloody thing, I can tell you, is to keep ringing people up. Glastonbury, folk festivals, folk clubs. Can I have a gig? No answer. Send an email, no reply. Send mm. a record, no reply. And, oh, I'm sorry, no. And after a while, that can really bear down on you. Mm. So I made mm. another decision back around the late 60s. I wasn't going to do this anymore. If I got gigs, I got gigs. And if I didn't, I didn't. Yes. And blow me. It's almost like some weird osmosis of the soul. They started to come in. Nice ones too. People that wanted me to play. And so there we are. We've got to 2019, 2020. I've got an absolute raft of gigs starting off at the Roundhouse on March the 12th, supporting Holy Holy. Well, that's a good way to start your, your gigging year. With Tony Visconti and Woody Wood Mansi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Supported that gig at Roundhouse. March 12th, brilliant. But COVID was rampant. And so I, I couldn't stick around after I went straight to my dressing room uh, and then just ran out of the place when I'd done my set virtually and got in the car and drove back to uh, Torquay. Um, but that was it. Within a month, every single gig had been cancelled for a year and a half. So I never got to, never got to promote the album. 
Yes. Now we're back in the game again, and I've got an absolute raft of gigs. I mean, anyway, that's my gig list. I can, I can say yes. I know you're all over the show. At all, considering that's all happened in the last like four months put together. Yeah, that's a nice little run of work. Well, to be um, honest, I think I think the the rise of the singer songwriter is going to be very popular for the next eighteen months because because venues just want to go. Can you come? Can you play tomorrow? You know, like next week or something. You know, it's yeah. very quick and nimble, isn't it? And I think that's what you need at the moment. Well, yeah, I hope so. But I mean, I, I I'm just um, I've worked out my whole itinerary and uh, where I'm going to stay and what I'm going to do, and. Um, we're starting well we've just done we've just done the sonic rock festival i'm on the bowie bandstand of course here he comes again here he comes again appearance in life august the 14th at beckenham is the bowie bandstand which i can I do see every and, what's year that, I can. and what's that like kind of going back there and playing oh i tell you it was very strange first time i did it uh, i've done it twice now in four years because i i got gigs on some some of the saturdays so i couldn't do it for my Dear friend Wendy Wu, who who not only organised it, she also helped get it um, as a listed status. Yeah. So now it's being repaired and looked after, and it looks lovely. Um, and I remember the only time I've been there was 1969 when I played at his free festival, the only one he did. Yeah. And um, and, and I walked onto the bandstand again, and, and it was just stuck a little time slip, you know, just a funny feeling. And I thought, oh my god. I remember this gig in black and white. Here's another weird thing. I, I remember the first Bastonbury in black and white, probably because the only photographs I've ever seen of it are in black and white. Oh. And that somehow tricked my memory into remembering it as a black and white gig. And there I was with all these people spread out in the grass, all in multicolours, and it was brightly coloured. There was flowers and flags and bunting and all sorts. There you go. Amazing. Black and white gig to a colour gig. That's not bad. That's a that's a that's a nice thought actually. Did Bowie ever get in touch with you or vice versa over those after that period? Yeah, once he asked me to come to a studio, and I can't remember where it was in London. That was when I was in the the not in the bedsit days, the the dark days as I call it. Yes. And I got a phone call sort of late night to come up there, taxi provided, or I drove up. I can't remember. And he was in this studio and just played. Got stone played. I got stone played some riffs on the guitar. Played some riffs. Played some riffs. Played some riffs. Yes. The weird thing was, I said, I never got told thanks. Um, here's a check or thanks. Here's some cash or thanks. Anyway, for coming, it was almost like this weird thing. Like you suddenly felt you weren't wanted there anymore. It was. Um, it was just like the atmosphere would change, and then I think, no, I just pack my guitar and I'd walk out. And that's what I did. And I remember seeing him. He's back to me with his, with his sort of electric guitar with loads of pedals in front of him, his headphones on, practicing one of the riffs I'd put down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tricky. And what was Tony Visconti? Sort of inspiration. Ring the hippie. <laughs> yes, we've, we, uh, we've got a blockage. We need to shift it. But was Tony Visconti, you know, was that nice to sort of meet him again with Holy Holy? It was lovely. I mean, I'd forgotten, of course, that he was very young at the time. Of that album as well but uh yeah no it was lovely he's he was looking dapper and fit and slim and on the ball on the very ball. oh yes. god yeah yeah very impressive 
Well, the same with Woody, actually. I've done an interview with him and uh, he's, he's you know, doing well. So I think that project has been quite good fun for all of them, actually. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? There you go. So, look, last question. What, you know, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self, I mean, what, what would you have wanted to whisper in their ear, even if they ignored it? But with all these decades and experiences, I just wondered if there was a couple of key things that you would have thought yeah. mm, could have been good. Yeah, I would have said, whatever happens, don't worry. It'll all work out in the end. Just don't worry. Just do what you do. Make your mistakes. Fail. Suffer. Succeed. Be triumphant. Be broken. But whatever you do, deep down inside, don't worry. Cool. It'll all work out in the end. That is beautiful. There you go. Well, Keith, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always send you the link of this and then you can put it on your, I can see you've got a very up-to-date website, which is more up-to-date than anybody else's I've ever met. Um, you obviously well, very- Thank you very much. I built that. <laughs> well, sometimes you think, oh, they haven't put anything for ages, but you really have, well, I guess it's all your gigs, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, there's a lot I could do with that website. I don't really like the black background, to be honest, but uh, the trouble is I'd have to change so much. Um, it, I have to say, it was like learning that, about WordPress and, 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 oh God, it was such a joy to be able to use sort of Elementor and WordPress together to create a site without so much of the blood and toil of HTML and then to be able to squeeze it look at it on a mobile phone where it actually blooming works you know <laughs> I know yeah. WordPress I love it yes I was going to say I think that's something that we can all agree on it's like oh it's just like a word document but it's on the website and it's like I don't it need works. a three-year degree yeah. it's it yeah. and it links to all these other things that I need as well my god <laughs> Yeah. I know that's uh, that that is my but anyway look thank you ever so much Keith and I'll um yeah I'll keep yes, it please do I'd love to I'd love to see it I'd love to yeah see it. I'll, I'll I'll definitely send it on but um but that's great and have a great year and and um hopefully you've got a new album coming out soon oh I wish I, I've got I, I can't write I'm just hoping that, that once travel has, has eased I can maybe do my French thing again or something I don't know what it is I don't know why I've got lots of, I have been putting ideas down and I've been writing things down and I've been recording little snippets and ideas. So I'm not starting from scratch, which is good, but getting that somehow that space to do it, I just can't find it at the moment. I don't know why you'd think in the midst of a pandemic, you've got all that time to sit. The trouble is in the midst of a pandemic, you've got the right time to, think, to sit and think about dying. And that's not conducive to no. writing a joyous next album which is what i want it to be i want it to be joyous yeah it'll come it'll come or it won't it will i know hank wangford i did an interview with him just as he just as that appeared and he got his new album got all those dates it all got cancelled and he said god you know you you've been always wishing for all the you know some time to sit there and do something now you've been sort of given it it's like no i don't really feel like it now yeah you know it was like it's too much time I, I need some structure i need a bit of a deadline or a bit yeah, of urgency. Start people writing songs about the pandemic i'm like no <laughs> no thank you very much i've yeah. had enough of that i don't want to hear, hear somebody singing about it uh, no there is and that's not gonna help is it anyway look i'll let you get on but thank you again and um i'll keep in touch but yeah all the best that's great i'll, I'll hit end bye bye uh, thank you very much it's Bye. been brilliant great and that, dear listener, 
isn't a very swift and easy ending. Ha! No, it's not. But I do like to leave those bits in because it always sounds very sort of, um, yes, fumbly. And we love that. Anyway, look, a big thank you to Keith Christmas for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to find out any more information, um, he has got a very good website, which is just Google Keith Christmas Musician. And you'll find it all there and much more with his live dates. And also, um, yes, his latest albums, Crazy Dancing Days and also Life Live from 2019. This, though, has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do The C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? Um, You can find these on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.